You're listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others. Individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards. As we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Today, we are lucky to be sitting in conversation with the poet and literary activist E. Ethelbert Miller. He's received the Mayor's Arts Award for Distinguished Honor. He is the author of several collections of poetry, and his anthology, In Search of Color Everywhere, was awarded the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award in 1994. He's been the editor of Poet Lore, the oldest poetry magazine in the United States, and he is here today at the commission. Thanks for joining us, no, Mr. Good Miller. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. Uh, I appreciate especially that today you've been uh, making a special trip to see us. So tell me about some of the recent things you've been working on. <laughs> well, I'm working on a number of things. But uh, I do have a new book out, and uh, it's called If God Invented Baseball. Uh, I'm really excited about the collection. Um, I'm very happy that Dusty Baker, the ex-manager of the Nationals, called me long distance from California and said he liked the book. <laughs> so Great. that was really nice to him to take time out and, and do that. Um, it's a book that has been really resonating among baseball fans. So I see this as perhaps maybe my most popular book. We've got a few baseball fans, particularly right here in this area. Well, you better the ballpark's down the street. <laughs> Are you a Nets fan? <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, good. Well, yeah, no pressure there. I mean, it's okay. Uh, but it sounds like a great book. So uh, tell us the inspiration behind this book. Actually, this is a book. It's the outgrowth of social media. Um, people know that I have a tendency of posting some of my poems on Facebook. And what happened is a guy by the name of David Wilk, who used to be head of the NEA Literature Division back in the 70s, saw a couple of the poems and said, Ethelberg, I like these poems. Um, Do you have a collection? I said, I do now. And so I I wrote the book um, actually for David because he was publishing, uh, uh, he has a publishing company, and said, hey, I can put this book out. And I think he's done an excellent job. Oh, well, great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And actually, that leads into one of my first questions for you, which is, Given the, the current uh, social media and internet opportunities that people have to access, uh, particularly the written word, and in many cases spoken word too when it comes to poetry, uh, how do you think that's been a game changer for the discipline? Uh, that enabled me to sort of network internationally. Um, so if you look at since the last, say, decade, my work's been translated in quite a number of languages, and that's from people who discovered me um, through you know, the social media. Um, I use uh, Skype uh, on a regular basis. So some of my close literary friends are not in the United States or in other countries. And so I try to make sure that, you know, um, I not just promote my own work internationally, but the work of people that I know here in this country so that they have a wider audience. And that audience does seem to be growing. Exactly. Uh, For you, let's go back a little bit, though. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to where this all began. You know, we we kind of, we have a frequent question on here. And our frequent question is, you know, what was the creative spark that led you to your life as a poet? Well, you know, I can't take my place myself outside of history. And so if you look at when I came to Washington, D.C., I came to Washington, D.C., I was 17 years old. I came here to go to Howard University. Uh, I came here after the student movement. 
uh, at Howard. I came here after King was assassinated. So in the midst of what we would define now as a black consciousness movement, you know, I felt that to some extent I was baptized here in the city in terms of politics, um, becoming an activist, um, being really concerned about Afro-American literature, and actually decided to major in Afro-American studies, which was not my intent when I left the South Bronx. And so you can see that many times um, an agenda is written outside of what you might want. And um, the question in terms of how do you see your life and what you can do once you figure out this is a path that you can undertake. What does it mean to be a literary activist to you? Very easy. Um, you know, I, I, I take credit in terms of actually defining the term. Uh, one, I have to write, but I put a heavy emphasis on promoting other writers, and I put a heavy emphasis on preservation. And so if you look at um, the Gelman Library at George Washington University, they have a literary archives. I pretty much created that. Uh, that's the outgrowth of a, uh, a lecture that I gave at GW. And um, I'm very happy that what I saw many years ago, um, I can see it working because I've seen scholars use the material that has been preserved. And that's very, very important. So much stuff gets lost or so much stuff is in private collections, you know, in terms of scholars wanting to do research. Uh, I, I was always collecting things from the time I got here. And some of those files have become very helpful in terms of filling in the graphs as people do these biographies and literary analysis. We talked at the opening, it was introducing the idea that you've been editor of Poet Lore. Uh, tell us about the impact of Poet Lore. <laughs> That's funny. Al Lefkowitz, who was one of the founders of the Writers' Center, um, selected me, I guess, about 14 years ago to be be one of the editors. And I laughed. I said, Al, I don't even read the magazine, let alone look at it, <laughs> because I thought it was a very ugly magazine. Um and so I think that's why he said, said, why don't you be an editor and change it? One of the first things I did, I changed the covers. You know, okay, uh, yeah. I changed the covers because since it was one of the oldest magazines starting in 1889, mm. I wanted every issue to have a historical look. Sure. And so me and my co-editor, Jody Bowles, um, we began to use photographs from um, Washington Historical Society, Library of Congress. So if you line up um, the 32 issues that we've edited, you'll see they all look alike. You know, uh, we take pride in that. We take pride in discovering writers. We take pride in the reviews that we've did um, for buying a forum for. And it's, it's even though we come out only twice a year, we have a significant impact in terms of the literary community. You know, let's talk a little bit about poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I run a, into a number of people who uh, find it hard to connect with poetry and others who live and die by it. Right. Uh, where do you think that that disconnectivity comes from? How do people, how would you say you can help people find connection to poetry? Well, I think it's changed now because what happens, you go out here and everybody feels they're a poet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And they don't know it. <laughs> no, about, well, right? they'll try to let you know it. <laughs> but oh, what happened, so. you know, what happened is, is that when I was growing up, you know, poetry was something that, first of all, um, you, most people didn't understand. It was difficult. Um, so in that case, you know, they put it to the side. You know, it was like spinach or something they didn't want to eat. <laughs> um, but then for other people, um, it was a sense in terms of a poem was something that rhymed. And so their understanding of poetry was very simplistic. Um, but what happens is that what I like about the genre is that, especially now, poetry has to be tied into with things like mindfulness. You know, you cannot read a poem the way you read a newspaper or even a novel, okay? You have to work with it. Uh, I think it's very important to, to pick up a poem and don't understand something. But then the next step is, I need to understand it. How do I go about, you know, what do I look up? And that means that you have to do some work. You know, so you can see, you know, reading and writing poetry is also tied into critical reading in general. 
you know, you don't want to like, you know, build something and, you know, you do it being an architect or, or engineer and take the same approach that you say, oh, I don't like, I don't like numbers, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, you look up in the bridges where you're collapsing. But, you know, I think in terms of one, um, people are finding poetry as being a key part of their life is, is, is important. And I think now because of hip hop and rap, uh, we need to even be more strict in terms of, okay, you just can't get up and express yourself in terms of like spoken word, okay. You have to make sure that you know exactly how poems are put together. You have to to know, you know, you know, poetic devices, you know, you have to know what personification of alliteration and use that. I mean, the key thing is a metaphor and image. And many times what happens, I'm sitting in a, in a place, I don't hear that. You know, I, I don't, I know what you're saying, but I don't see what you're saying. Right. Okay? Sure. And so these are the things that I think right now, um, the genre has become very popular. You know, it's like democracy, but with democracy comes great responsibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had someone describe to me once that uh, poetry is a bit like leaving clues for the reader. Well, that's and, and, some real detective work. Yeah, and there's a little bit of you've got to discover what it is for you. Yeah, that's right? what. That's so, what. Right. Is that a framework that you sometimes think about? The, no, that's the, what. Hopefully, Mullis figuring out right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get that when we okay, read the baseball right, book, right, of course. Okay. I'm sure. Uh, but it's part of that that connectivity, you know, how sure. do, how do people sort of identify? Right. And you write about the sort of different forms that it mm-hmm. that it takes. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, our former poet laureate, Dolores Kendrick, mm-hmm. um, and we're sorry to have said goodbye to her recently. Uh, but talk to me about her work. How would you, you know, how would you, as a as a poet yourself, how do you sort of see that body of work, and how does that resonate? And how did you, how would you describe that to a layperson? Well, I think it goes back to your, the question that you asked me before about you know what does the literary activist do? You know, I think because I am a literary activist, you know, Dolores Kendrick became poet laureate. You know, uh, I'm very much aware of a number of writers who emerged um, like before I did, uh, who pretty much are not studied. So I could say, okay, here's Dolores Kendrick. Here's Gloria Odin. Here's Mary Millicent. I can go down a list. Mar- Margaret Danner. I can list a whole number of people who have several books who came of age as a writer in the 1950s. But because of Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, dominating in terms of winning a Pulitzer Prize, and now here comes the Black Arts Movement, Okay, with Barack and everybody else, Sonia Sanchez, Hockey Matabuti. Those writers who were writing before, maybe about, you know, being in Italy like Dolores Kendry, their work got overshadowed. Okay? It's so important if you're gonna understand your history and culture that you make sure that there's this continuity. You know, and so I was always committed to that, you know. Uh, I knew Dolores Kendrick's work. Um, I knew that um, she was the type of writer that was like a writer's writer, you know. Um, and that she was also a person I felt um, once I saw her in her venue, you go up to Exeter, you know, I can't think of too many Washingtonians who are, who are painted in oil hanging somewhere, right, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And, and you saw how um, she, was, she was seen, okay? You also have in terms of Washington history where sometimes a son or daughter is known by their parent, okay? And so you never get a full appreciation of who they are. And so I, I saw Dolores Kennedy not being, you know, her father's daughter and with the Capitol Spotlight newspaper, but being a person whose who's writing is very important. And when you see how she was able to blossom into the role uh, as being Poet Laureate, you could realize that that was a very good decision that the city made. Uh, so that's an interesting thing when you talk about um, we have these Poet Laureates, we have State Poet Laureates, we have the, the National Poet Laureate. Uh, what should what should the community be thinking about when we hear of the Poet Laureate? What, what is it well, that I think, they're, they're I think the city to? needs to know its history. You know, um, the first Poet Laureate was Sterling Brown, okay? Well, why was Sterling Brown the, the Poet Laureate? Po- Sterling Brown was Poet Laureate because myself, Grace Kevlar, and James Riley made him Poet Laureate. But what, are we, what were we responding to? We were responding to segregation, 
okay? We're responding to someone saying, okay, um, I'm walking through Malcolm X Park. No, you're not walking through Malcolm X Park. You're walking through Meridian Hill, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what the map says when the tourists are looking. Like, okay? When I came to D.C., people were referring to Sterling Brown as the Port Laureate. Well, he wasn't. Okay, he wasn't, okay. you yeah, know. Yeah. So for a city that's always talking about home rule and this and that, all we did, Grace Cavalry, James Ray, and myself, was make it official, okay? We had to coax <laughs> Sterling Brown out of his house, okay? <laughs> Sterling Brown, for many, many years, when you visit him, he would say, Daisy, uh, but I'm gone, you know. His wife died before he did. Mm. He was really a broken man. Daisy was the center of his heart. You tell Mr. Brown, you know, we're going to have a ceremony for you, you know, make you Paul Laureate. Well, I don't know. But when we placed him back in the cab with his, you know, um, achievement award, to see his expression was like seeing somebody down south who all of a sudden the signs colored in white were removed and they could have a drink of water. Mm, Okay? And so when people say, okay, was there a term limit? No. This is for life, okay? You don't want to say, okay, give that back to me in three years, you know? <laughs> you know, like the Emancipation Proclamation or something sure. like that. You know, <laughs> what happened is that this was something that, for me being an activist, this was, this was the right thing to do. This was how I was raised, okay? This is how you honor your elders, okay? And so what happened? It's supposed to be the highest honor. But then people realized, okay, the poet really should do something. Okay, there's an opportunity to spread the importance and beauty of poetry. So when you have a person like Rita Dove, you know, becoming poet laureate, Rita Dove is dancing, throwing out baseballs at games and stuff like that. She really made the the position one that if you were going to develop a poet laureate in any city, any state, it was going to be a person who was going to be very active, okay, with certain credentials. Now, I've judged, um, you know— I created the position in Tacoma Park. I just got finished judging the Port Laureate selection for San Antonio. I, I, I know exactly what the cities are looking for, okay? They're looking for someone who has a certain stature. They're also looking for someone who's going to do something. Um, is an odd question, but uh, I'm sure you've been asked before. Is there such a thing as bad poetry? Well, if my mother was still living, she'll tell you yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I raised my children. I don't want my children to be poems to act up and whatnot. But, you know, there is. And, and what happens is that this is a thing that we have to look at in terms of criteria. And what happens is that sometimes bad poetry is someone disagreeing with your politics. Okay? Uh, sometimes bad poetry is the fact that what happens is that you have, shall we say, not taking consideration the, the rules. You broke the rules without knowing the rules, okay? And, that, and that's the concern. At the same time, many times you can be experimental, okay? But you just have to know what you're doing. You know, I came of an age back, you know, in the 60s where everybody wanted to play like John Coltrane. <laughs> well, no. Be able to go out and with the, the Lynx or, or the Masons having a parade down the street, play their music, and then you can do, you know, beyond my favorite thing. But some people just felt that, okay, I'm going to start out this letter at this point and not learn the basics and stuff. And there's a problem because then if you come along and, and evaluate it, you can say, okay, this is not good. And you'll be able to say it's not good because of the various reasons. You have to spell it out. And that's the thing that we see right now. We live in a time where people don't want to be critical or the fact that I like something makes it good. With your new work, your recent work, uh, what did you find new about yourself? How did you discover something different? Well, I'm a much better before? writer now. 
you know, uh, I think what happens is that when people look at my last book, uh, and keep in mind, just being a literary activist, most people know my activism, they don't know my poetry. Okay? <laughs> you know, now I remember Kwame Alexander, he was on NPR like a couple of weeks ago, and he's, he made a statement, he said that, that Ethelbert Miller writes probably the best love poems in, in that contemporary writers are writing. And I take pride in that. You know, I can, I, I know Neruder and I know Miller, you know, and, and, and I, I, I take pride in that. But I'm a much better writer now, and, and that's the thing in terms of one, um, even this last book, where people are just stunned by the various forms, you know, the structure of it. If, if you said that, okay, this is so many different ways of looking at baseball, you know, people say, that, oh, I never looked at it that way, you know, in terms of music, history, things of that sort, you know. Sure. And then the forms are, are what I think pushes the work. You mentioned earlier that a lot of your works are translated. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what I've seen, a number of languages. Mm-hmm. How involved are you in that translation process? And, and are you? Well, only to the point that in terms of Poet Lore magazine, um, Jody Bowles and I and Suzanne Swag, we, we take emphasis in terms of uh, highlighting translation. Um, you know, that's one of the things that if you look for what the future is going to be, that's the key. You know, uh, we just had the Split Disrupt Poetry Festival. Uh, I've always told Sarah Browning, if, if this is going to continue to grow, then this is going to be an international festival. You're going to have people coming and they want to read in you know, Portuguese, they want to read in, in Spanish, and they have to feel welcome. And, and we have to do the work. We have to understand the poems and, and, and do that. You know, one of the programs that we're working on right now is playing a, a program on um, Pablo Neruda, you know, and one of my friends, Naomi Ayala, who lives here in Washington, uh, I always tell Naomi, you know, I always go to your readings, but you're always reading in English, you know? And I heard her up in Bennington, you know, reading the room in Spanish. I've never forgotten that. Mm, sure, you know? yeah. Uh, you've had works that have been translated, I'm sure, into other things, mm-hmm. uh, songs and into right. other sort of forms. How do you feel about that? I think the, if I had to look at what I'm extremely uh, proud of, it's a composition that a friend of mine, Richie Clark, did around Oscar Romero, um, you know, who was killed in El Salvador. He took a poem that I wrote. It was one of the few poems that someone asked me to write uh, many years ago when Romero was assassinated. And when I listen to that now, uh, it, it takes me back to my brother because it sounds like Gregorian chant. <laughs> but it, it is so beautiful that... Um, I, I, I just say, wow, you know, um, I didn't think I could write something like this. Great. Accessibility. We are always looking for ways to increase more access to all the art forms that we support through the commission. How can we do that? How can we do that through our community? How can we do that in a wider base in terms of access to poetry? Well, I think you want to have the arts interact. You know, I, I look at the fact the last, say, two years, I've spent a lot more time with the visual artists. Um, you know, uh, I think that's very important. What are, what are the artists saying to each other? Okay, um, that's very important. Uh, at some time, there's certain art forms uh, that are sort of overlooked. In fact, I remember at one time the commission overlooked literature. You know, if you thought about the arts commission, you're thinking about theater and dance. Uh, and so, you know, you don't want that to be the way your community develops. You know, a little dance heavy or a little theater heavy. So, you want to make sure that the arts are communicating and, and that people know. Also, it's very important that uh, artists have an interaction with patrons. Okay, and that they also look have an interaction in terms of the various schools uh, on various different levels. Um, that's key. Uh, and I think you also have a changing community. So when you take a city like Washington, D.C., which I always tell people is not a southern town anymore, it's a cosmopolitan city, you have to say, okay, we've got people here who are from Ethiopia who've written plays in America, okay? Um, those plays should be performed outside the Ethiopian community, 
You know, that's what we should be doing in terms of accessibility. You know, I was one of the founders of the Humanities Council, and one of the things we struggled with was how do we get, the, you know, this new Washington to integrate itself with the old Washington? Well, that's the same way with the arts. You've got to make sure these forms are, are, are connected. So a young person grows up, you know, knowing opera as well as knowing something about, you know, a jazz concert. And, and that's our mission, I think, as, as not just an arts commission, but that's our mission as parents, and that's our mission as citizens. You mentioned that there is, uh, you've, you've had involvement with poetry festivals and uh, uh, you mentioned other other poets that I'm, I'm sure you're reading. Uh, and so I kind of wonder when someone like yourself is, is very engaged in the community, in, uh, in particular the, the poetry community that you are and the ways that you are, uh, that there's an enjoyment that comes out of that. Uh, finding out what other people are writing. And and so I, I kind of ask you, um, w- what do you do outside of poetry? And, or is poetry just a sort of busman's holiday for you? Right? No, but, you know, what happens is um, I always say poetry might be 30% of my time. Um, you know, I take pride in terms of the things people don't associate me with. You know, I work a lot behind the scenes in terms of activism, um, bridging communities. Um, I spend a lot of time mentoring people. You know, so if I look at the people that I've mentored, and, and these are people that I'm constantly mentioning, mentoring, uh, I take great pride in that because they're they're they're, change, they're like superheroes, you know, and and they know each other. And so when I look at how I bring some people together and the projects that spin off of that, I, I take pride in that. That that's that's the thing I I really see happening. What would you say to a young artist who's writing and you know getting their their feet wet? Well, the fact that it's 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 not easy. You know, it's not easy. And you also have to make sure that you have your, your, your ear to what's happening in the society. You, know, you, know, you want to be in tune with it, and then you want to be ahead of it. You know, it's very important for any artist to be visionary. It's uh, always a question uh, for someone like you. What is the book on your armchair uh, side table? <laughs> what are you <laughs> reading now? What am I reading? I'm reading some wonderful memoir, uh, personal essays by my students from Goucher. That's what I'm reading right now. Um, and that's very important. But I would say what's in my bag right now, which, which I have to finish today, is um, there used to be a writer here in Washington, D.C. Uh, when I came, who was a the big name, with that, who was Michael Lally. And McAlally was key for those group of writers around DuPont Circle, which was part of the mass transit readings. And so what's next for you, Ethelbert? What, what, what can we look forward to? For me, you know, um, I, I would like, um, I've been sort of leaning on my son. I, I would like my um, children to really become active in the arts. You know, my daughter, who's a lawyer, she's back to, to doing her artwork. Uh, my son, who every now and then, I, you know, I might, you know, he might write something. But I really think that, you know, he could have a position of being a good writer. You know, you can't force them to do things, but, you know, I would take pride in that, you know. I don't know what my grandson's going to do right now, but that's another challenge. You, you get a little more time. <laughs> a little more time on that, right. <laughs> right. Well, Ethelbert, thank you so much oh, for Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's always good to sit to down and, and talk with you. Absolutely. We look forward to more. Thank you. You've been listening to The 202 Studio, a podcast series of the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today. (laughs) 